Hello, I'm Andrew Suskind, and I'm a therapist and author based on the west side of Los Angeles since 1992, specializing in trauma and addictions. Welcome to my podcast, named after my recent book, It's Not About the Sex. Here we have honest conversations related to compulsive sexual behavior and trauma, all from a sexual health perspective. Our intention is to offer fresh viewpoints and practical strategies toward establishing greater intimacy and a more deeply connected life. Let's begin. Dr. Shane Krauss is a licensed clinical psychologist and an assistant professor of psychology at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. His clinical research focuses on the study of psychopathology, sexual trauma, substance use disorders, gambling disorders, and compulsive sexual behavior disorder. He's particularly interested in using behavioral, epidemiological, and neurobiological methods to assess factors that contribute to the development of addictive behaviors and other co-occurring psychiatric disorders among at-risk groups. Dr. Krauss has published extensively on sexual behavior and was part of the World Health Organization Working Group who put forth the diagnostic criteria for compulsive sexual behavior disorder for the ICD-11. He received his PhD in clinical psychology from Bowling Green State University in 2013. In 2015, he completed his postdoctoral psychology fellowship at the VA Connecticut Healthcare System and the Yale School of Medicine Department of Psychiatry. So today I am really excited to have our guest with us, Dr. Shane Krauss. And I met Shane a few months ago at a conference, the Society for the Advancement of Sexual Health. And I was really excited about what Shane and his fellow researchers are really taking a closer look at certain topics that just haven't been looked at before. And what's exciting about it for me is that I've had, I believe, only clinicians on the podcast up to this point. We've been doing the podcast a few years now. And so I think, Shane, you're the very first researcher to be with us. So welcome. Thank you. And we have so many things we could talk about, but I'm going to start off with really the, the basics of what brings you to the podcast today, which has to do with the new classification or the newer classification of compulsive sexual behavior disorder, which is in the ICD-11. And as I mentioned in your bio, you were really instrumental in in being one of the folks who helped the World Health Organization uh, classify what we now call CSBD uh, as a classification. So I'm wondering if you can talk about what, what this really is, what symptoms define it, and also the controversies that, that surround it as well. Perfect. Sure. Thank you so much. I, I will. That's uh, thanks. So compulsive sexual behavior disorder is, is a new, a relatively a new term. And as, as you're correct, in 2000, actually 2022, it became, in a sense, live. It became an official disorder. Um, and what that meant is in the first time. So historically, we had terms like sex addiction or addict control sexual behavior. And we had other terms to describe problematic or, you know, sexual behavior that was getting people into having difficulty, you know, problematic pornography. And for the first time, we were able to kind of put um, a classification system, you know, as a mental health disorder. But in this case, we, we classified it 
or called it compulsive sexual behavior disorder, rather than sex addiction or hypersexuality, hypersexual disorder. Uh, and the reason that's really important is, you know, we want to always be thoughtful around not creating labels and classifying sexual behavior because lots of people have varying sexual behavior, sexual practices, and, and that itself has, is not problematic. But for some people, they do have issues. And, uh, and for the first time, we were able to have kind of a uniform kind of framework to think about that. But it has been controversial. So, and we'll talk about that. But what it is, so what is compulsive sexual behavior disorder? People ask me that a lot, right? And it's like, okay, cool. So what that is, is it's a kind of a broad over uh, term to describe, in a sense, problematic or compulsive or difficulty regulating oneself or stopping oneself engaging in a kind of a sexual behavior. So in a sense, despite your, you have uh, intense, repetitive behaviors, sexual behaviors, it could be pornography, it could be casual sex, it could be masturbation. And despite your best efforts, you cannot stop doing it right for at least six months. So it isn't something that just came for a week and went away. And from a criteria perspective, we think about things so like, what, what does that mean? It means like, have you tried to quit and been un, unsuccessful quit uh, attempts to quit? So just, you're really trying, but gosh, you can't stop it. Um, you're doing it, but you don't enjoy it anymore. There's loss of pleasure. It just feels compulsive. It feels really negative. Um, so it's also kind of uh, causing harm or health issues for you. It's causing problematic or impairment in your functioning, right? So, so these are these are kind of the, the what we would think about some of the core features, right? Um, but it isn't is so some people say I, I I'm distressed about my pornography. I'll use that example. Okay. But they're distressed because maybe their pornography is different than their religious or spiritual or their personal value beliefs. And we say, well, okay, but we want to make sure that before we give as a clinician, I'm a clinician as well, uh, before we label someone with a disorder, that the distress alone isn't the reason. So like, oh, I use pornography once this last month. I know I have a porn addiction. And the answer is no, that's not the case. Your distress is real. Perhaps you're upset about it. It can, uh, you know, it doesn't align with your values or your beliefs. Okay. We can talk about that, but that doesn't make it a compulsion, a difficulty stopping or not able to control yourself. Right. And that, that we'll call loss of control. That's really the hallmark of it. Right. So, um, so that's kind of what, and that's similar to prior understandings, what we call sex addiction or hypersexuality. So they're very similarities. Um, but for the first time we have kind of a framework that was accepted internationally um, for clinicians and for researchers. And this is necessary to really move the field forward, I would say. Mm -hmm. You know, several years ago, I saw a documentary that defined addiction. I'm going to use the word addiction as anything that you want to stop, but you can't, which really, in a sense, is more compulsion, right? And, and I'm wondering for our listeners, because it can be confusing, can you talk about the difference between yeah. something addictive and something compulsive? Yeah, okay. Yeah, so I think that the, 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 there's similarities, right? So if someone who has a substance usage, an addiction issue, gambling, there's often like a difficulty controlling. So loss of control is a big thing, right? I, I'm trying to not drink, but I can't keep, stop. I keep failing to stop drinking. I'm having health issues consequences great so those are very similar and that's that's very similar to sexual behavior it has health issues difficulty stopping oneself um, but with addictions we often see things related to tolerance so doing something you know drinking more and more and more because you're trying to get the same effects or withdrawal you stop and have a physiological rea reaction so with addiction there's some symptoms that are more substance dependent or more specific than 
impulse as an impulse control disorder, which is what CSBD has been classified as, which mm-hmm. minus those withdrawal tolerance and those other symptoms. Because to be fair, we just don't have that data right now. Um, and the, the, the CSBD criteria is a very simple kind of what are the core things we think are the issues affecting people. And from that, we can study and build upon it. We can say, well, if someone stops using porn compulsively, what if they have tolerant? What if they have withdrawal? What if they have psychological stress? These are things we could study and ask questions. And that would look similar to addiction. But right now, we don't have enough evidence. But we do have, I would say, enough evidence to know the core things like, you know, difficulty controlling oneself, difficulty stopping, uh, things like that, I think are pretty similar uh, that I think we can feel are, are good foundation from a diagnosis perspective. Yeah. So if, if I'm hearing you correctly, it's not that there's a competition between the terms that are used to describe these behaviors, but the compulsive sexual behavior disorder is now something that's been validated and that has been accepted worldwide. And the term sex addiction, although it's been used so widely, right, worldwide for so many years, it it doesn't have the same validation or the same um, kind of empirical research behind it per se. Is that, is that accurate, Shane? Well, I would, I would say it's a little bit of both. So I would say that, you know, you speak to the people who are in recovery for sex and they, and, you know, someone says, I'm a sex addict, I'm I'm going to support them to identify however they want to. I would say that there, there is some evidence, you know, there's been some good research on sex addiction framework, but I still, I think still not enough. And I think what we do need is research to say, well, let's compare sexual addiction criteria, mental, what are the symptoms of sex addiction based on Dr. Karn's work, uh, original work, and what are the symptoms from hypersexual disorder? from Kafka, Mark, Dr. Kafka, and what are the compulsive sexual behavior disorder criteria? And they're very similar. And then let's say, let's go ahead and, and, and test or recruit or interview a thousand patients. And then let's say, well, what really sticks together? And that is a systematic way of understanding psychopathology, right? And that's what we've done for alcohol, substance use, gambling, other, other behavioral disorders, depression, schizophrenia. But that rigor is still lacking right now for sexual behavior. It's getting there. I think there's more we're doing good work, but that level just isn't, isn't there. So I always say, pause the brakes, pump the brakes, and let's go to the middle road. And I think the, the neutral, the more neutral perspective is compulsive sexual behavior disorder. The framework is very neutral. Focus on more behavioral indicators or like, what are, I, I can't stop. I, I have a problem that I've had for six months. Okay. I can't stop doing this by trying. I'm not enjoying it. It's causing me impairment in my functioning. Okay. That makes sense. That's a framework I can, I can work with. What other symptoms of addiction or hypersexuality and hypersexuality, the difference is I'm engaging in sex because I'm emotionally distressed or I'm just, you know, I'm having a bad mood as a coping strategy. That's an important thing we need to study. There's still not strong evidence that that is essential, right, from a diagnostic perspective. So my perspective, and I think other people in the working group, is just like, let's take a middle of the road kind of approach. Let's start with something because a, a framework to start with, we can build upon, we can add, or we can take away. So as much as we've learned in the last 35, 40 years, we're still learning. And, and I also hear that it's a time of, of really trying to come together and more than anything, alleviate suffering. Yeah. I did have a question about the word disorder because I have colleagues from time to time say to me, especially sexual health colleagues, 
say to me, why are we putting sex under the term disorder? How, how does that go together? We don't want to pathologize sex. What is your take on that? So I get that. So I always tell you, you know, I, I think when, whenever we create a, a mental health disorder or a category, I think they all inherently have stigma, right? And sexual be, sexuality, we have a history of stigmatizing people, you know, whether, you know, we, we said homo, you know, homosexuality was a mental illness, you know, 40, 50 years. I mean, it's just, we have a history of, of this. And I think we have to be very thoughtful and very careful. And at the same time, we have to recognize there are individuals who are in recovery or struggling with sexual behavior, problematic pornography, casual sex, lots of things that are legitimately real. And, and without a disorder, without a framework, you can't have treatment interventions, psychopharmacology, psychotherapy, so support. You can also have uh, reimbursement for, for for clinicians to treat them. Uh, you also then can't legitimize their experience and help reduce stigma. So there's both, there's pros and cons. And I think we have to be very, very thoughtful around applying a label to someone. But at the same time, I, I, I've often met people and say, nope, you don't meet criteria, but you do have this issue. I think we should explore it in psychotherapy. At the same time, it's also helpful. Someone is really struggling and say, you know what? This is a really concern for you. It does meet this diagnostic criteria. And here's what we think we're going to do for a treatment recommendation. That's also helpful for a client. It's also for someone to say, you know what, my experience is valid. And how do I help get help and treatment for it? So it's really kind of a, you know, dialectic, right? It's a two, two things are both true. And I think we have to walk that road of saying, how do we increase access and support others? And also make sure we don't label people whose sexual behavior might be different than uh, someone else. Sexuality, sexual behaviors are really variable. Uh, and that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. And we have to appreciate the differences within sexual behavior. One of the topics that you and your colleagues shared at the conference was this idea of moral incongruence. And not only did it inspire me when I heard you guys talking about this, but it reminded me, I went through the Rolodex of clients through the years and, and all of a sudden it, was, it, it jumped out at me that moral incongruence had been part of their experience. And I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about what that really means and, and how does it fit into this CSBD diagnosis that we're talking about today? Yeah, I think so. I think this has been a, a really uh, a big discussion in the last, uh, I'd say, seven or eight years. Uh, Joshua Grubb, Dr. Joshua Grubbs of BGSU has done some work. I've been able to work with him as well. And, and moral congruence is part of the criteria in a sense. It's what we call rule out. So, but first, moral incongruence is this idea that um, we all engage sometimes in behaviors that that don't feel like they align with our values or something's off, right? And and because sexuality and sexual behavior has a lot of moral judgments, unfortunately, we stigmatize and morally judge people for their sexual behavior, their weight. You know, we have a lot of uh, stigma around certain behaviors and sexual behavior, sexuality is one of them. Uh, and I think there's a lot of concerns and a lot of fear and stigma and judgment. Uh, and some uh, communities might be more um, uh, non-supportive of, of other individuals for, for, different, for, for different sexualities or different approaches. Um, so sometimes, for example, we've seen people seeking treatment who might say their uh, report being an evangelical Christian, for example, I'll just use that example, it could be any other faith. So I've seen them all faith, so I'm not picking on them, I promise, um, who maybe any, any pornography use uh, is very distressing for them and says, I'm a bad person. I, um, and, and, you know, and 
my perspective in treatment as a clinician is, well, I'm going to, I want to help you live a life worth living. That's important to you at the same time. What we know from our research too, is that sometimes those who say, well, uh, I use pornography, it's morally bad. Therefore I'm an addict or I'm a porn addict, but then we look and say, well, how much are you doing it? How much do you view pornography? And we find it's actually not as much. And in fact, there is a, there for some individuals who say I'm a porn addict and who are religious, it's actually that driving the self, you know, I'm a porn addict rather than objective behavior. We don't see failed attempts to quit. We don't see them really having those symptoms or problems. More of the, the shame and guilt that they have for their, because their behavior is in conflict with their own religious or personal beliefs. Again, clinically, that's very distressing. And I think that has to be addressed. And we want people to live a life worth living and in a way that's congruent with their values. And at the same time, I don't want them to take a label and say, I have a porn addiction. When they look at pornography once a month and they have no history of failed attempts, there's really nothing like that that suggests they really have this compulsion, right? There is lack of a compulsion. So, so when we think about a diagnosis, if someone comes in and I always say, well, what brings you in? And I want to see what's the driver? What's the, is it a partner? Is it a, is it what, what's going on? And if it's like, well, my, Partner, so example, I had a couple case. My my partner says my porn's an issue, uh, and they weren't sexually active, and they were having some difficulties, and there was some pornography use and secrecy. But what what did I do as a therapist? Is I actually worked on them engaging, uh, you know, working on trust, engaging in sex, uh, therapy, engaging in sexual behavior, and guess what? happened the pornography disappeared. Wasn't there wasn't a compulsion, but when there was an absence of intimacy with a partner, the the pornography, the masturbation and secrecy was a way to that this this uh, client was trying to, to get the needs met. So engaging them. So he he came in with a label, but I said, no, there's no label here. But there is an issue of lack of intimacy between that couple. I'm going to work on that and, and not use a label to define that. Right. So so it's understanding the function of what's happening. But at the same time, if someone comes in morally, well, I, I'm a Christian, I shouldn't do this, but I use pornography. We want to unpack that to make sure that we're not diagnosed and say, well, I'm really distressed. This is a bad thing. The distress is high, but there's nothing else. There's no compulsion. There's no other issues. We have to address that. At the same time, I've had clients who are very religious, who are morally, who have a lot of stress about their use, and actually their use is also compulsive. They meet they have a lot of use. So you can have both just like anything else. Right. So, so I think that the goal here is to understand, well, what's, what's going on for the person? How are they internalizing it? And it, and what, how does it map onto um, the criteria? Does, are there loss of control? Is there difficulty? Is it, has it existed for six months? Are there, are there any other medical issues? If someone comes in and says, well, I'm engaging in risky sexual behavior. And I'm like, well, when, oh, when I'm generally using cocaine and alcohol as a clinician, I'd say, well, let's work on the alcohol, cocaine, and, and alcohol. And often, when that goes away, there's no risky section. But I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't diagnose this. So, understanding kind of the, the context, if that makes sense. One of the things that I ran into, and I was thinking about moral incongruence, is how invisible it can be, and how oftentimes there's such a profound shame that is underneath the person's behavior that is really based on a background of, of unfortunately dogma and rigidity and, and, and a lot of secrecy actually. And so I wonder if you could speak for a moment about the profound element of shame uh, that goes along with moral incongruence. Yeah. Yeah. Good. That's a great, great point. And so true. I think shame is very difficult. And I think those 
who are reporting uh, issues with, you know, their sexual behavior, often we see a lot of shame. And I think shame is uh, often a product of our culture and, and, and what people have to experience and even in just, you know, expressing themselves sexually. So I think there's a lot of shame based. Uh, shame, unfortunately, is very difficult because shame reinforces a lot of issues. Shame is a, a spiral, which is very difficult. And, and clinically, when we work with people, we truly try to focus on understanding shame and focusing on ways to reduce shame and have uh, gratitude and self-compassion for oneself and really work through these issues because shame is very difficult for people. Uh, and some of that shame, we have to understand, well, what, what, where'd you get it? Where, where did it come from? What makes it? And really unpack that. And I think that's a really meaningful um, process. Um, so it's just, I always tell people, just because someone comes in and said, I have an issue, I don't, it's not that I don't believe them. I just, well, I want to, I kind of want to see it because why they might think they have an issue or what they, how they identify may or may not be how we as, uh, as clinicians or as researchers think about that. So, so it's kind of helping understand that, but yeah, shame is a big thing. I think it's, uh, I think in clinician, I think in therapy and for those out there who have similar issues, I think having compassion for oneself is the, the uh, you cannot get through anything without having compassion for yourself, having forgiveness, working for yourself and helping others. Uh, that is the, the process because I think the shame only produces negative feelings, which reduce increased likelihood of acting out and engaging more behaviors. This is the same for alcohol, for gambling, every other behavior. Mm -hmm. If you beat yourself up, there's, it's not likely that you're going to feel better or, or do better. You know, if you beat yourself up, you're likely just to stay beat up. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite Brene Brown quotes that I, I often bring to my groups actually is that shame is given to us by others and shame is healed through others. And whether that's in one-on-one -on -one therapy, 12-step groups, where, wherever you can be yourself fully and not have to hide, not have to be secretive, it's such a gigantic part of the healing process. So I, I appreciate what you, just, what you just said about all that shame. So shifting towards the idea of healthcare, a little more macro for a moment, um, what are the gaps right now in, in healthcare for those with compulsive sexual behavior? Yeah, well, there's a bunch. So, so I, think the, I think the first one is gonna be really getting, so we have a, a framework, we have a disorder, uh, but it's really also kind of working with healthcare companies to really legitimize it and provide and reimburse clinicians for treating sexual behaviors. Because what, what happens, and I've done this, is, you know, you, someone has depression, so you bill for depression, but you're really treating also this other behavior. And I think we need to really work and advocate for this to be uh, a billable, treatable, uh, reimbursable kind of access to care uh, that we would for any other you know, other things such as gambling or alcohol or substance use or anything. So I think that, I think that's not there. Again, I think now we have a framework. We have, we have, we're literally just took the first two steps in the, in the marathon. So we have a long way to go in terms of that. I think the other thing is really continue to work on the classification and the diagnosis and really make sure like, okay, is this, is this right for everyone? But is this also correct for women? For people of color, LGBTQ+, we really don't have really good diverse data yet uh, for clinical samples. We, we have a lot of, what we do have is often convenient samples or people seeking treatment. And unfortunately, most of those who can seek treatment have more resources or funding or money. And that's not necessarily those who are underserved in our community. So we have to think about that. So, so from a diagnostic perspective, I think, you know, I think we have a good framework, but 
I, I'm, I still want to really do a lot of rigorous work to say, well, is this true for younger people, older people, people of color, people from different languages and or different cultures? And, and we're doing a lot of big multi-country studies now to really say, okay, well, how does this look in Peru? What, what, what will this look like in Hungary or in South Africa? And how do we understand the, the, these components from a, a cross-cultural perspective too? So that's another area. I think measurement, so having good screening tools for clinicians to diagnose is a big area. And we also need to have really good training uh, for clinicians to understand, hey, this client's here, what am I looking at? Is this a compuls sexual compulsive issue or is this maybe something else, a moral incongruence or maybe a, a, you know, un unstable bipolar disorder, I need to treat that instead or substance uh, or active substance use. So, so I think those are probably some of the big areas. I think we're, we're trying to accomplish all those. I, what I love about this field is that it's so new, but what, we're, what scares me at the same time is like, oh my gosh, we have so much to do. It's uh, it's a good problem, but it's like, wow, no matter what direction I look, we have a lot of work to do, I would say. But I would say that that's only because of all the excellent work that's been done decades, so, you know, in the past that we now are starting to, to have a legitimate, legitimize people's lived experiences for decades who've had these experiences. And now we're saying, we hear you and we want to try to advocate to help you and get services. And, and I think that's, that's the next point. And the last point is research funding. Unfortunately, research funding is very limited. And, you know, we really need good research funding to really do good high quality research studies uh, that are, you know, that really do take into account all these diversity, gender, sexual identity, all these discussions and these points that are limited right now in the data and, and the results. Along those lines, one of the things that I hear you saying is that we're still in a way, in the infancy of, of really doing what's necessary to, to make a dent in, in the healing process. And so there's still a lot of stigma. There's still a lot of myths. There's still a lot of misunderstandings. And I'm wondering, because a lot of our folks that listen to our podcast are folks who are really sensitive to these issues, but may not know how um, on a on a daily basis, how they might be able to spread the word or, or or be part of the education process. Do you have any ideas for for those folks? Well, I think it's one of those things that I think when you, as a person, you know, it's it's really interesting that if you open yourself up to to have an open mind and support people, when you start asking and talking to other people in your community and in different areas, could be your church, could be your you know your work. And you start supporting people, I think you often will start to hear things. And I think you have that opportunity to support people or to make space and to discuss it. And, the, and I think to also use language that is inclusive and supportive. And I, I think, yeah, it, it's one of those things that it's so new that we have so much to do. But I think we're finally having the conversation. I think the podcasts like this, I think we're, we're starting to really move and have conversations. Well, what are the implications of sexual, you know, COVID and sexuality and pornography use. And these are all things that, you know, now we're, you know, we, we have a lot of questions and, and these are things I think it's a nice time. And I think if you're open and willing and having a conversation, you'd be surprised who, who would, who, who might disclose an issue, or if you just make it known that you're also going to support people, uh, I think it, it's a good thing. I mean, I, at the same time, if you're in a position, you can also post, you know, if you have information or flyers or ways to support resources for people and things like that. I think it just depends on where you are, but I think part of it is just being open and available and non-judgmental. It's kind of a good thing, I would say. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. 
not everybody is familiar with the World Health Organization. And I realized I didn't ask you this before, but I want to ask you this before we wind down. What is the World Health Organization and how did you get involved in it? Because you are one of the folks, I, I actually was doing a little Googling. And when I saw the definition of CSBD, it, it had your name as the first person uh, in the research list. So can you share just a little bit about what the World Health Organization really is all about? Yeah, so I would say that I, I just got lucky to get, I, I just got lucky to be along the ride. And so I'll just say that uh, there's so many brilliant people that were have been part of this process. Um, I think the World Health Organization is a really, it's a global organization that really is focused on understanding uh, health disparities, mental health, physical disparities around the world. It has world partners all around the world in all countries and kind of comes together to really figure out how do we support these communities. Um, it has a, a ICD, which is an international uh, was it, classification. Oh, God, I'm saying the wrong manual. Um, and this is like a, a codified or, or in a sense, the, a book that has all the disorders, the classification. And why that's important is that the world uses that. So the, the U.S., you know, uh, only uses the DSM-5, right, the manual, that, because we're U.S., we use something separate. Um, but the world generally uses ICD-11. So getting having that recognition by the, the World Health Organization to say, hey, we recognize that CSBD is a, a hotly debated, controversial topic. We know that the science is still kind of evolving, but we recognize that its inclusion and its discussion will, A, hope, reduce stigma, increase funding, and will increase access for people with these issues. And those things, are, I think, are very true. Um, because many of the countries in Europe and places, uh, once it's in there as a disorder, a mental health disorder, then people have an access or are able to seek and receive treatment for it. Um, and that really does increase access for people, um, particularly many of whom are marginalized. And so, so it's helpful. But they also recognize that, hey, it's not perfect. We don't have all the, we don't have all the answers yet. And, uh, and their answers, the reason we don't is because we haven't had the funding yet to do that. And I do think that's changing. And I think there's now some really funding that's happening in Europe here. I think we, we're really seeing a, an increase in, uh, in, you know, kind of an enthusiasm for the topic. So I think in five years, we're going to have a very different, uh, you know, worldview and understanding. But yeah, they took a big risk and I was so happy to be part of that. There's all these brilliant people that I work with and I just, just so grateful to continue to work with them now uh, and kind of continue to move this, this forward. And my perspective, I always said is that, look, it's not perfect but it's a framework to which we can start to build on. You know, you can argue, you can be, you know, researchers, you'll see these debates, you know, they argue it's this, it's that, and, and they have these academic debates. But meanwhile, the person who's sitting in front of you who doesn't have, who can't get access to help or, or feel validated for their issue, to me, that's a problem, right? So I'm less than interested in having a scholarly debate and, and doing all these things and trying to figure out how to serve people who are struggling. So, so this is kind of the, the World Health Mission, World Health Organization's framework is how do we address disparities? How do we serve these people? Uh, and I think that was a really good approach. I would say that that helped a lot. So. One of the other things I just want to say about the World Health Organization is that they have been evolving with a definition of sexual health for many years, which is very exciting that 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 folks from around the world have been studying and defining what sexual health is all about. So it really is all, all, all inclusive. And I, I 
just feel like there's room for for all of that. And and Shane, I I, just, I think you're very humble about what you're saying that you ended up in the right place at the right time, but you also bring a voice to something that's so so uh, valuable to all of us. And before we end for today, I'm wondering if there was just one thing that you'd like our listening audience to take with them from our conversation. What what might it be? Oh gosh. That's a gosh, that's a good one. Um, I would say uh, that I think just always have a, a willingness and openness to this area. And if uh, if you yourself, this is an area that you have had to struggle with or struggling to, to have compassion and help for, you know, for yourself, compassion for yourself. And at the same time, also, if it's not something you struggle with, also to be open minded and supportive of others. And, you know, just kind of keep that that open mindset of others and helping others and yeah, I would say that's the that's the biggest thing. I think their biggest hurdle is to stay non-judgmental and support others, you know, in this area. As we, you know, as we again continue to get more information, but how do we support people who have different struggles with different things, you know? Well, thanks again, Shane. It's been such a pleasure spending the time with you. And I hope at some point down the road before five years that that you can come join us again and we can get some updates. That would be great. Maybe we'll we'll do something at the, the next SASHCOM. I would love that. Thank you so much, Shane. Thanks for listening today. It was really terrific sharing the time with my colleague, Dr. Shane Krauss, and discussing this really meaningful topic. If you are so inclined, please give us a five-star rating, be sure to subscribe, and share my podcast with those who may benefit. I look forward to you joining us the next time. And don't forget to stay connected.